Welcome to Rise, the United Independent Podcast, where we are rising above the fear and division of our current political landscape towards a civic culture of unity, stewardship, and effective care for the places we call home. Today, I am joined by Amelia Powers Gardner. Amelia is part of a rising generation of civic stewards working at the municipal and county levels to bring the spirit of innovation and stewardship into our government at the most local level. What makes Amelia such a incredible leader for this movement is both her commitment to working across the aisle to find solutions that improve the quality of life of all of her constituents and the spirit of innovation that's constantly looking for how we can upgrade our systems and structures to better fulfill the original promise of America. Amelia sets an example for municipal officials around the country that innovation and working across political ideologies is possible. And through her leadership, we can see how some of the solutions that are already available can be implemented to make democracy more efficient, more compassionate, and more effective. So please enjoy this episode with Amelia Powers Gardner. I am so grateful to be joined this morning by Amelia Powers Gardner. Thank you for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited. We've been telling the story of the independent movement, the tapestry of people who are all coming together around our shared devotion to democracy itself beyond ideology. And, and then we've also been talking to people who are really doing the deep work to Get, go fully into the institutions of democracy and change them from the inside. And of all the people that I've talked to, I've been so looking forward to talking to you because you have the real world lived experience of being in government and working to bring some of these innovations and systemic transformations into government. And so I would just love to open with an invitation for you to share a little bit about yourself. How did you come to find yourself in this position? And and what is that motivation that got you? Yeah, thank you. I joined public service about three and a half years ago. And I was very first elected the clerk auditor for my county. It was a dual position, both the county clerk and the county auditor. And really, I decided to get involved because our elections office here in my county was just a disaster, really a mess. And it had really become like the laughingstock of the state to the point that our governor had called it the epicenter of dysfunction. And I was just sick of really like the gatekeeper of democracy being the county clerk's office that runs elections. I was really sick of that just being a complete mess in my county. And so I was happily working in the private sector, making really good money. And some voice inside me just said, you know what, it's time to clean up that office and you need to be the one to do it. I thought I was crazy at first. I sat at the, my husband, who was my fiance at the time, I sat him down, I sat my kids down and I said, hey guys, I think I might need to run for public office. If I do, we're taking a big pay cut because we're leaving the private sector and going into public. What do you think? And everybody said it just felt right. 
So I jumped in with both feet and, and left the private sector and decided to run for office. And I won a resounding victory. I won 74% of the vote against a three-term incumbent that year. And then really set off onto a journey that when I decided to run for office, I had no clue I would be on. I really thought that I would run for office and I would get in and clean up the elections and then get out. It wasn't until I actually got into government and started looking at it that I realized how dysfunctional and antiquated and really ancient our processes were. And then that really inspired me to say, you know what, maybe there's a, a higher reason on why I ran. Yes, I cleaned up the elections office and that needed to be done, but seeing the complete lack of innovation, lack of customer service mentality, of serving the citizens, and really all of the opportunities that we had opened up in the first really six months that I was on the job. And I thought, you know what? I'm here for a reason and I've got a lot of work to do. There's definitely a lot of work to do. And I've had a similar experience of you start pulling the thread and all of a sudden everything unravels and you're like, wait, was it this dysfunctional this whole time? And I just didn't notice it's That's exactly right. You can see that some amount of the dysfunction on the surface, at least of our national politics and the way that the media covers it. But, um, yeah, I'm curious what you learned at the local level around like what was the what were some of the biggest dysfunctions that you noticed and what were the innovations that you've discovered that may be able to address them? Yeah, I think one of the biggest dysfunctions was this idea that um citizens are an inconvenience to the people working in government rather than being literally the entire reason that government exists it was that this idea that like citizens are an inconvenience and having to serve them is like putting you out and we really flipped that on the on, on its head and that's a big part of it where we said they're the reason we exist they're literally why we have the jobs we have why we have these buildings we have why we show up at work every day is to serve the citizens that was a big part of it. But as I started delving into that even more, I started to look at things and realize, for example, with identity, that every one of your identity documents that you have, think about it, your, everything that proves you are, who you are, your birth certificate, if you're married, a marriage certificate, your driver's license, your social security card, your passport, every one of those identity documents was given to you by government. And the way our system works today, government actually owns that information and they own that database because they really are the ones who created it. And if you lose any of those documents, birth certificate, marriage certificate, driver's license, passport, you have to go to a government office and ask permission to get a copy of it. That really just floored me. Also, switching modes a little bit to elections, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that 
in today's world that we don't have a zero trust or a trustless way of verifying votes. So back in the day, before we had a lot of technology, the only thing we could do was just rely upon our government officials. And that's why elections are run locally. A lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people think maybe Washington DC or your state capital runs your elections. Now in the constitution written into the very fabric of our founding documents, it says that elections will be local. So when you vote for president or whether you're voting for city council, the people running that election are your local election offices, usually at the county level, but it's a very local process. And that is a good thing in that the people counting your vote are people that live in your neighborhoods. Their kids go to school with your kids. These are our friends and our family and our neighbors that live in our local communities and they run our elections. And that's fantastic and that has worked for us for hundreds of years, but we have a technology now that allows us to be able to cast a vote in a transparent way, but still be completely anonymous, preserving your right to a secret ballot. And it's crazy to me that we don't have this huge wave of the public demanding that be how we run elections. This episode of Rise is brought to you by the second independent national convention happening October 29th and 30th, 2022 in Austin, Texas. INC 22 is bringing together leaders from across the independent sector to establish a vision for national transformation into good governance and your role in it. If you're interested in or passionate about moving America forward beyond our current divisiveness, rising as one independent nation for government that is truly of, by, and for the people, we think you should be there. Go to www.inc22.us to register for in-person attendance or get a link to the live stream and share the vision of an independent America with your friends. We look forward to seeing you in Austin or online as we let the world know that American independents are uniting and working together to create a more beautiful world. I'm curious your experience of have people been open to transitioning things to blockchains in, in your community? Yes and no. It's not exactly on an age split, but I do see a lot of it on an age split. If I'm talking to someone over the age of 60, almost always the idea of blockchain, of putting identity documents on a blockchain or of casting a vote with their phone using blockchain, they are just adamantly against it. But when you start asking questions why, it's either because they don't understand the technology or they just have a fundamental misunderstanding of the technology. And at this, on the same note, I have had dozens of people and I've spoken at business, at business lunch and learns where I talk about it and people literally cheer. So I think for sure people maybe under the age of 40 are coming to me and saying, why can't I vote on my phone? And the older people are saying, I think the only way we should be able to vote is in person at the polls on election day. With the irony being that so much of current election infrastructure is digital, 
and a lot of those contracts are with companies that aren't fully audited. And so there already is opportunity for us, for our elections to be tampered with. And blockchain is actually a digital technology that's much more tamper-proof than some of the technologies we're currently using in our election processes. I'm so glad to hear you said that because you're absolutely right. That's something I have to explain to people all the time. They're like, I don't want any machines. I don't want any outside vendors. And I have to explain to them, like, you realize we use like a dozen outside vendors and we already have all of this information in databases anyway. It's the same argument that I get back when people find out I'm putting marriage licenses on a blockchain and that I'm creating an immutable record that shows your identity documents that you could access at any time. And they freak out and they say, the government's gathering our data. And I explained to them, like, you realize you got that birth certificate from the government and you realize you got that marriage certificate from the government. They already have all that information. In fact, they created that information. Like us putting it on a blockchain doesn't mean you're giving it to the government. It means that you get access to it at any time without their permission. And we're at such a pivotal point in time with this technology where people who do want to engage in mass surveillance, they may come out with their own identity solutions that enable surveillance. And so we're in this in-between moment right now where people like yourself instantiating like the standards where privacy is actually baked in and not something that gets tacked on after the fact, but makes sure that no matter who's in office, no matter who's running the nodes or the technology itself, that people's privacy is still protected. Mm-hmm. And I see it as this really critical juncture where we could go in, in two different directions. One, where we embrace blockchain, and but we have privacy at the core, and one where we embrace blockchain and it becomes a tool for mass surveillance. And so I understand why people are worried, because there are cases yeah. of people's identity being tracked down through their transaction history on Ethereum, for instance. But But there are ways around it, and it just requires wise technology design with the right motivations and interests. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's inevitable that everything is going to go technology, digital, that is happening. And there are people out there right now developing technologies. And honestly, the only way to ensure our privacy moving forward, to ensure that we don't end up in some dystopian society is that we, this is why I feel a sense of urgency. We have to be the first to the table and we have to do it right. We have to ensure that there's an option available to every local government that enables digital technology in a way that ensures privacy and um, sovereignty for the individual because the digital age is here and government will be adopting this COVID has really lit in a fire and and expedited this. When I started using blockchain, it was 2019. So a full year before, before COVID. And I did not have a lot of people that saw the value of what I was doing. Most people said that I had a solution looking for a problem, that there was no problem doing everything paper-based. And then COVID hit and... People all over the world were told, you can't get married. You just think about that. Governments all over the world prevented millions of couples from getting married. 
merely because they couldn't get a permission slip from the government. In fact, at one point, we were the only county in the United States that could issue a marriage license because we were doing it completely online. We were utilizing facial recognition technology. You took a picture of your driver's license or your government issued ID. You took a picture of yourself. We verified it was a valid ID using a database. Like I said, those databases already exist with all the IDs. So we verified it was a real database and then we utilized an algorithm to ensure that you were who you said you were, that you were the person in that picture. And then we issued you a, a marriage license so that you could go get married. And people all over the world were being told by their local government, I'm sorry, we're closed for COVID. You can't get married. Yeah, that's just crazy to me. So after that, all of a sudden, a lot of people started seeing the light in what I was doing in realizing that enabling this technology actually makes it so that government can't prevent us from living our lives. And making that available to people and the education that's going to be required and the different kind of participation because suddenly there's no excuse to not go to vote that day because you can do it right. from your phone. There's like a kind of a cultural shift and a kind of educational moment here where we get people on to their own wallet. And, and I think we're still at a point in time with the technology where eventually my hope is that it will get to a place where it's just in the background and you don't have to know what a blockchain is. It's just the default of how we do our technology because it's safer. It's it more honors the sovereignty of the individual. The incentives are better for everyone. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if, what your kind of adoption strategy has been like to get people used to it, to get them to create their own wallet. I see if a future where all of our interactions happen through this medium. And so it feels like in some ways, this is just the tip of the spear, getting people ready for that future. One of the ways that we've done that, just like you said, we've made it function in the background so that a lot of the people that are utilizing this technology don't even realize it. One example is our marriage licenses. We do all of our marriage licenses on the blockchain and every person who gets a marriage certificate from Utah County receives a paper certificate, just like you're used to your classic one. But we also issue them a digital certificate that is registered. It has a hash and it's registered right now in the Ethereum blockchain. And we issue those to them and just tell them this is a digital certified copy of your marriage certificate. They don't understand the underlying technology, but what they do know is that they can have a copy of their marriage certificate on their phone that they can use to email their banks and their credit cards and the airlines so that they can change their name when they get married. Or if they need to prove their relationship status to an employer so that they can sign up for healthcare. They just know that they have the ability to forward this digital document to them and it works. They don't need to understand how blockchain works. They don't even need to understand what blockchain is to know that this digital document on their phone that we emailed them allows them to be able 
to facilitate their life a lot more easily. So that's one way you do it. The vast majority of people honestly don't care what type of technology makes their life easier. They just care that it's more convenient. So that's a big, that's a big aspect of it there. Um, the other part of it is we've started in voting, utilizing blockchain technology just for people that are disenfranchised. Uh, certain demographics of people that have had the biggest issues voting. So military members and citizens living overseas and people with disabilities. These are people that literally can't vote at the polls on election day. It's not an option for them. They're in the military. They're actively either out of state serving at a military base or they're overseas. Citizens living overseas who still have just as much right to vote as you or me or people with disabilities who can't get themselves to the polls. Those are the demographics we're starting with. And what we're doing is showing people that there's no reason to disenfranchise human beings in this day and age. We have the technology to let every person exercise their constitutional right to vote and to do it with dignity. And so we're starting with people who didn't have that ability. Wow. And I can see how if it can, if we can show that it works for those people, then we can show that it works for everyone because those are some of the hardest cases to solve for. And so it's like the technology needs to be able to work for them in order to be able to work for everyone else. And so and it, an incremental path to adopting this technology in government is really the best way to do it anyway, because it gives us the ability to check and learn and improve each step of the way with smaller demographics. So for example, our marriage licenses right now, we're doing just marriage licenses in Utah County, but I could see us expanding and next moving to birth certificates and moving to death certificates and moving to other vital statistics and other vital records. But you start with one and you prove that it works, right? So for example, we've got our marriage licenses right now, but the, we're still having issues with two offices, the DMV and the Social Security Administration on accepting these marriage certificates. So now we know, okay, there's an issue. So we can continue issuing digital marriage certificates and we can work on how do we solve this problem with the DMV and how do we solve this problem with the Social Security Administration. Once we've done that, then we can expand it to birth certificates, right? And the same is true with voting. You start with a small population and then you find out, is this user-friendly? Is it not? How do we make it user-friendly? Is this secure? If, are there any issues and how do we make it more secure? And this will be a constant battle of continually improving. And then as you improve, then you adopt another demographic. Maybe it's a first responders because first responders don't always necessarily have the ability to go to the polls on election day because you never know an emergency is going to come up. We actually find this with wildland fire. Oftentimes we get a wildland fire, firefighters, they get called out like days before the election. And then we have to find a way for them to vote. And so if we can do this in small waves and we can continually make the process more secure and more user-friendly and more transparent as we move along, then 
you don't really have a lot of the issues you have with broad adoption. So I don't think that coming in and changing everything to blockchain overnight is a good idea, but we need to continue to make progress. And just for people who may not be connected to how revolutionary this is and what a paradigm shift it is, our mutual friend, Brittany Kaiser, is, has been an advocate for owning your own data for many years now. And when you put identity onto the blockchain, that also means that anyone who is holding those identity certificates can also own all other aspects of their identity and bring that with them across Web3. And so it creates an entire different paradigm of data ownership that really puts the power back in the hands of the citizen and the consumer. And, and so there's ripples of impact of this. That's not. Yeah. Imagine you yeah. getting paid for companies accessing your data instead of Google getting paid for those companies to access your data. Yeah. That's life changing. And I really do believe that there's a moral imperative. Not only is there a moral imperative because people have a right to their own information and people have a right to their own sovereignty. But look at, um, at refugees. The Taliban came in and took over Afghanistan and you had a lot of women that had to flee or face being killed. And when those women left the country, they ended up in UN camps and they had to prove their identity so that they could get refugee status in Europe or in the United States or in Canada. And those countries do need to verify your identity so they can ensure that you're not a threat to their citizens before they accept you. But you've left all of your information behind because you didn't have time to swing by home and open the fire safe and grab all your identity documents. So now you're stuck in a refugee camp. And if everything was on the blockchain and you had the, you know, the 12 phrase passcode to your wallet, you could then open that digital wallet and show that information to the UN and or to whatever country you're trying to get refugee status in. And those countries would be able to verify and validate that that data is accurate because it's recorded on a blockchain. The same goes for third world countries. If there are people that don't have a birth certificate, so they can't get a passport merely because their parents didn't have enough money to travel the three hours by bus to the capital city and register your birth because you were born in a village at home. Just across the board, there's a moral imperative to increase the value and the standard of living for humans and for people all over the world. And those countries aren't going to be the places that this technology gets proven. They're going to look to countries like the United States, like the, the European Union countries, they're going to look to those countries for proof that the technology is valid and that it works before they start adopting it in third world countries. What just came up for me as you were saying that was just how beautiful the phrase government of, by, and for the people is, and that you can't have government that's of the people unless 
everyone is represented, has access. And so this technology just makes it accessible for everyone to participate in democracy, which is right there in our founding ethos right. is that we all need to be able to have the access to participate in order for our democracy to be truly democratic. And I have, yeah. I have, you can't see it, but I have a quote up on my wall here. And it says that freedom is not the sole prerogative of a chosen few. It is the universal right of all of God's children. And that was actually Ronald Reagan that said that. Wow. And that was really his prerogative for pushing Gorbachev to tear down the wall in Germany was this, he truly had this idea that freedom isn't just reserved for people that happen to be born in the United States. Freedom is a human right that is universal for all of God's children. We have an obligation here in this country to live in a way that sets that example. And we talked about polarizing figures. That's one of the things that we need to realize. I happen to be a registered Republican. I'm elect, I was elected as a Republican, but I don't just represent the Republicans in my county. I represent the Democrats. I represent the Green Party. I represent the Constitution Party. And I represent those that don't have a party. I represent all of those citizens. And I try to serve in a capacity as a public official in a way that serves all of those citizens that's really something we should be looking for in all of our leaders. Someone who's looking to bring, bring rights and raise the status of all of the citizens, not just the ones that happen to be registered with the same label as them. That's a perfect segue to something that I wanted to ask you about. Because I feel how principled you are and that there's a, a deeper motivation that drives you than, than being a career politician. Mm -hmm. And, and you're also, you, as you said, you're a registered Republican. And so I'm, I'm curious what your relationship is with party politics, if that's something you feel like you can get into and how you see the two party system and the independent movement evolving what it means to be a Republican or a Democrat or an independent. Is there a kind of a way of, of coming together beyond those identifiers that, that feels like it could actually create a different kind of outcome than what we're used to in our current political dialogue? Yeah, absolutely. I think honestly, our current political dialogue is just toxic and you can't blame just one party it's really toxic on both sides it interestingly i am a registered republican and the hardest election i've ever been in the most vitriolic disgustingly lie-filled hate-filled just despicable election i've ever been in was the Republican primary election that I just won. Wow. And 
so there's definitely people in my own party that are that are divisive and just want to sling mud and spew hate and the reason they hate me is because i will work with people of all stripes if on issues that we agree on i will work with democrats i will work with republicans i will work with independents i will work with whoever if this is an issue that we agree on and that we know will better the people then i'm going to work with others and i got fried by the extremists in my party because of that now with that said i won with almost two-thirds of the vote so that tells you that the vast majority of the republicans appreciate that i'm willing to reach across the aisle and that i'm willing to work on difficult things and that i'm willing to push the envelope and adopt revolutionary technologies. But there's a fraction of them that were just horrifically awful to me because of it. I think we see the same on the other side of the aisle. I think we see the same with the Democrats. And with that said, I've got a lot of Democrats that I work very closely with that I, when we work on issues that really matter. And I think the reason that we like me for example i'm i am a republican because i see in my state that republicans are representing my values more than than the other party but i also think that politics is local because in there in in some areas that might not be the case right and in some areas they're, they're nonpartisan. Now, in my area, you're not going to get elected unless you're a Republican, because there, there literally isn't a single elected official in my county that isn't a Republican. So luckily, I happen to align with the Republican Party here. But I have a lot of really good friends that are not Republicans that have voted for me that have put my sign in their yard. And I can't tell you how many times I get a campaign donation and the person says, I've never in my entire life donated to a Republican. You're my first. And that's really exciting for me because what it shows people is, shows me is that people are starting to look through party politics and that's imperative. As I've gone to adopt these technologies and as I've gone to shift the paradigm of government and say, hey, you know what, the whole reason we exist is for the people. Maybe we should be serving them instead of making them, instead of making them drive down to our building and take a day off work to do it. Like maybe we should make it so that they can easily access the services that they need online. Sometimes my biggest champions that help me get that done are Democrats. And sometimes they're unaffiliated. So one of the reasons I really support the national independent movement is because there are a lot of places that the parties have become so extreme that they don't represent the majority of the people. Keep in mind, like I said, this last election was the most vitriolic, horrible, mudslinging election I've ever been in. It was people in my own party doing it but I won two thirds of the vote. So there's going to be places where your party leadership on both sides of the aisle don't support you. And I think it is more important that people look at the candidates and what those candidates stand for and the issues that those candidates champion 
than it is the label that those candidates carry. Because I've seen opposition on both sides. I just happen to have seen more support for my ideals in my state on the Republican side. I really love that answer because I don't think I've actually spoken to someone who's affiliated with the Democrat or Republican parties on the podcast so far. And we've been want, we've been really careful to avoid divisive language because we want everyone to feel invited because this is about something deeper than ideology. Absolutely. And so it's really cool to hear from you directly the feeling of what it means to be an independent Republican, where you are values aligned and so you're and you're part of the party because that's where you are and the county that you're in. And you're you're not beholden to the same kind of vitriol that we associate with the two parties at the national level because you're working at a different scale and you're working with a different ethos that is willing to go across party lines and is more about getting the job done and serving the people than it is about serving your party. And so I think you're just setting an archetype for people who want to be independent, but also don't want to give up their Republican or Democrat affiliation. And there's room for those people too in this movement. Absolutely. And that's really beautiful. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that there absolutely is room for people in the movement. There's just two issues that come to the top of my head that I've really been just raked over the coals for. I recently voted for a resolution to abolish the death penalty. And the platform for the Republican Party in my county and in my state supports the death penalty. But I just don't think it makes sense. It doesn't make financial sense. And there's just, I think I, what they're finding is like one out of 10 people on death row, they're finding that they shouldn't be there. And it's one out of 10, that's a little, that's a little too high for my morals. Um, and, and then financially, it just doesn't make sense. It actually costs more money to put someone on death row than it does to put them in life, in prison for life without parole. And the other one is my county under my predecessor in the clerk auditor's office actually stopped performing marriages because my predecessor refused to perform gay marriages. So they would issue marriage licenses because they were legally required to do so, but they stopped performing marriages. And within 24 hours of being in office, I changed that. And I said, look, people, regardless of whether or not you agree with somebody's lifestyle, they have a legal right to be married. And it's ridiculous that we as their government officials aren't providing that for them. Beyond that, I am a religious person and I don't feel that any government has a right to interfere with anybody's religion. And so if someone else's religion will perform gay marriages, then who am I as a government official to prevent that religion from doing it? And I don't think there should ever be a case unless it includes like killing someone or severely abusing a child that a government should interfere with your religious ceremonies. So I've broken from the traditional party politics on those two issues, but I've also seen a lot of support from fellow Republicans in those issues. I'm going to make a video about 
civic culture. And I think you're describing it perfectly here in your orientation because it's that capacity to still care so deeply about our spiritual values, our religious orientation, and then to have the space within ourselves to show up in a kind of neutrality in government because we have to live in a pluralistic country. And that's what's so mm -hmm. beautiful about America is that we don't all think the same exactly. and that government can really be that neutral space of us just being people together where we don't have to give up our religious beliefs, but we can hold them simultaneously while we engage in this kind of third space of civics. Movement does that not just for religion, but for politics as well, right? Like we can agree that independence is great and we don't have to agree on every single issue. We can just agree that everybody has a right to have that issue and that we're all going to work together to ensure that everyone continues to have that right. I am just so grateful for the work that you're doing and the way that you're doing it and that you're part of this movement. And also just acknowledging that there seems to be this I've just met so many incredible municipal politicians from Utah who are super forward thinking and y'all are really, there's a crew out there, the people that are doing this and it's really exciting. It's yeah. 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 We've got a good crew here. We've got, we, you know, just like everywhere we have our outliers, but we do have a really good solid crew that recognizes that government should be here to serve the people and it shouldn't interfere in their lives. I think it comes down to the history of Utah. Utah was founded by pioneers who walked on foot from Missouri because there was an extermination order against them. It became legal to kill Mormons in Missouri. And so the state is founded by people that don't want government interfering in their lives. And I think that we recognize that we don't only want that for our, ourselves, but we want that for everybody. I feel that deep devotion to allowing people to make choices for themselves and respect the sovereignty of the individual, the religious freedom of the individual. But I've also noticed that there seems to be like a deep sense of service, a deep love of nature. Utah is one of the most beautiful states in the nation. And so the, and yet there's a different way of conserving nature. I was talking to Greg Durden about, you know, Maybe we don't need the EPA to make sure that our rivers are clean. Maybe we can actually take care of that as communities. And so there's this kind of rugged individualist spirit, but there's also this deep like religious faith, community orientation, and the spirit of innovation. So I'm just really impressed with the way that you're bringing all those things together. And thank you for yeah. taking the time to chat with me today. It's been great. I have enjoyed our time together. and. Hopefully we can show people that independents can also have party affiliation. You're showing the world a lot of different things, including that. And also I think you're showing a way for municipal officials in all jurisdictions around the country that it's possible to make these shifts, even the resist institutional barriers, there's ways of working through them and your drive and your passion has been able to create real change that I think will be an inspiration to people in office all over the country and hopefully voters who can vote for people like you in the upcoming election cycles who are carrying the banner of these innovations that can really create deep change. Yeah, I just want to say one thing, to, and if there is anybody yeah. who is in local government or local government officials, oftentimes they have a desire to get things done, but the actual 
blueprint or the map on how to accomplish it sometimes is just outside of their grasp or outside of their reach. For any of those people, reach out, reach out to me, reach out to my team. I will connect you because we can show you step-by-step step how to get it done. Amazing. I would actually like to have that conversation with you too, because I think one of the powerful things about the independent movement is making those blueprints accessible mm -hmm. and having like a clearinghouse that's able to find those best practices, be the connective tissue between the different municipal officials. And so I would love to support you in that and would love to make those resources available to more elected officials so that we bring down the barriers of entry to some of these innovations and let people know that it's possible. Um, Sounds great. Let's Let's do it. Amazing. Thank you again, Amelia. And I look forward to seeing you in Austin next month. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks. Thank you for joining another episode of Rise, the United Independent Podcast. This is a reminder that this is so much more than a podcast. As you can tell from the work that Amelia is up to, there are profound changes on the horizon. And this episode in particular is a call to people who want to get involved in their local government and bring about these changes and enact these solutions that are right here, ready for us to bring into the world. And so if you're inspired and you want to consider running for office in your local community, a great way to connect with the solutionaries, the visionaries, and the local organizers who are in alignment with that vision is to come to the Independent National Convention this October 29th and 30th in Austin, Texas. You can go to www.inc22.us to register for the event, get updates on the live stream, and bring your voice and your participation into this movement. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you in Austin or online for the Independent National Convention this October. Thank you.